Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of APIs Unplugged. My name is Matt McClarty. I'm the global field CTO for MuleSoft, and it's great to be here. It's also great, as always, to welcome Mr. Mike Amundsen. And Mike, where in the world are you today? Actually, I am in lovely Paris, actually chilly Paris. I'm here for API Days Paris for the end of the year, big uh, API bash, and I'm happy to come to you live from Studio M, my room at the hotel. <laughs> it's sounding nice and clear. And uh, of course, API go. Days, it's a big one for API Days, right? This is the 10-year uh, yep. anniversary. That's, that's uh, right. So that's right. Uh, yeah, congrats to Mehdi and Baptiste and team there. Uh, it's been an, an amazing story of uh, how, how that event has grown from a small Paris get-together in 2012 to the, the global scale it's at now. So that's awesome. And it's great that you made yep. the trip. Because hey, I also know you're a little under the weather, so uh, you know, hope you're feeling. I'm good. hanging in. I'm doing fine. I'm I'm tough. All right, awesome. Well, well, I'm extremely excited about today's episode um, because the topic is one that has been um, coming up everywhere and increasingly everywhere mm -hmm. in the last several years of working with organizations on their digital transformation. You can almost sort of. You know, whether we look at it in the, through the lens of digital transformation in the business or sort of IT transformation in the in the DevOps world, we've seen this progression, right, where companies, maybe they start out saying, hey, you know, we want to we want to be more efficient with the way we code and we want to get software shipped in a more customer friendly way with more with more input. So, you know, we're adopting agile principles and then while, you know, we want to be quicker with the, you know, with delivery and, and get the whole you know, engine working and we've got CICD pipelines and then, oh, well, you know what, we, we've got a cultural issue here with how we're separating out development responsibilities and ops responsibilities and we need to address this through DevOps and microservice architecture, you know, on and on and on. And eventually organizations realize that, you know, the organization is a big part of the issue here and, you know, how the, the culture is formed, really what I would may, might call organizational dynamics of you know how work is portioned out how teams are structured and especially how teams interact and yep. you know the landmark work in this area in the last few years is the book team topologies um, which really studies you know applying a lot of the principles from the schools of thought i just mentioned but but really looking at you know if we're to sort of rethink how um, digital organizations should be structured in order to meet the you know time scales and flow requirements needed for you know high functioning digital organizations and really shares a, a really nice uh, well articulated set of principles and you know methodologies and structures around how that can be done so i'm extremely delighted to welcome the authors of team topologies here to apis unplugged matthew skelton manuel paish welcome to apis unplugged hi oh, it's good to be here Thanks for inviting us. Hi, thanks for having us. Awesome. So, you know, we always do this on our show. We like to understand the individuals <laughs> behind the work. Mm -hmm. uh, so it'd be great just to understand, you know, I kind of, I kind of gave an industry uh, narrative there, but it'd be, it'd be great to understand, like for each of you, what are your backgrounds? You know, how did you get into this field where you started looking at these organizational dynamics and, and how did you actually team up? 
So my my professional background is in software development. I started off building uh, brain scanning machines and then did some work in oil and gas and then some local government, national government and big um, big uh, e-commerce type websites uh, throughout the the, the mid uh, noughties and, uh, and, and early 2010s. I, I've always been drawn to, I was always drawn to and still am, drawn to other aspects around software development. So like in my very first job, 2020, sorry, in, in 2001, what's that? 21 years ago. <laughs> um, I actually, I saw that the team, there's a team of four of us and we were struggling with keeping version, uh, keeping code in sync. We were, at that time, we were basically copying it across to a file share and then sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. So I introduced mm-hmm. some version control system. This is well before even subversion, certainly well before mm-hmm. Git. Um, and... Um, so that kind of very early on, thinking about, if you like, the dynamics of building systems with software and thinking about how that relates to the people involved. Um, and at the time, back in 2001, for this group I was working with, building these brain scanning machines, uh, it was quite unusual to have to work with a, a version control tool. That was something that yeah. was a bit odd. Um, but uh, and as I, I mention it because it's like an example of the kind of paradigm shift that is needed if we're going to be able to build bigger software-enriched services and be able to do that sustainably and quickly. Some of the patterns that, that we need to adopt feel quite unfamiliar and, and, and need, need some kind of new awareness to be able to, to, be able to adopt them. Um, now, obviously, that was like 21 years ago, and most people are familiar with using some version control now, but there's new patterns which initially seem unfamiliar, and then in 10, 15, 20 years' time, they'll seem super obvious. And I think that the patterns in team topologies are becoming that kind of um, kind of essential foundation. This, this is what people tell us, basically. It's, it's not just my opinion, but people say this all the time. I also have a background in computer engineering. Um, I started in the year 2000, my career, and... Mm-hmm. I've had a number of different roles and different work in different organizations from startup all the way to kind of a enterprise kind of environment, also uh, in government type agencies, um, and also had different roles from startup development, I did testing, I've been team lead, um, and then consultant for a number of years. And I think that gave me a lot of different perspectives on a lot of things. Um, And in particular, me and Matthew met around 2014, I think, through uh, InfoQ and QCon and some of the work I was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we started talking, well, Matthew started the DevOps topologies back then. Mm -hmm. And I started collaborating with Matthew and, and helping kind of uh, expand a bit more on those topologies, the, the early version, if you like, or the predecessor. Um, but we were also, we started doing consulting together for clients across the world. And it really was obvious that there were a lot of, uh, as you were saying at the beginning of this podcast, a lot of important issues around how teams are organized. Uh, do they understand what their mission is, what's expected from them 
internally as well. What do other teams expect from them? How should they interact or not interact? And there's, in almost every client, there's there was a lot of questions, ambiguity. And so um, that's where we started to apply some of the patterns in team topologies to different at different customers. Obviously, there wasn't such a thing as adopting team topologies at the time before the book came out. But you could see how different patterns were working um, and also hearing from other organizations doing similar things. And so I think that's kind of the beauty of team topologies, if I might say that. Uh, Obviously, I'm biased. But with a small set of uh, constraints and patterns that help us uh, achieve better what people are referring today as social technical designs and social technical systems, right? And um, the the organization of teams, the 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 architecture of our systems, and the 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 value streams that we care about from a business perspective, all those things are interrelated, um, and therefore we can't. And another thing that I, I saw often was a lot of focus on frameworks and tools, whether that was, you know, with Agile and then DevOps. And it always felt like, yes, this is valuable and this helps us go in in a better direction. But at at the end of the day, do we actually understand the principles? Do we understand, are we going in the right direction? And are we going there? How how quickly are we getting there, right? Mm. And so that's where I, I, I saw a lot of organizations that, you know, just saying you're agile, just saying you're DevOps because you have some tools or some practices, mm-hmm. it's maybe not enough to really be, you know, accelerating and, and becoming more agile from a business perspective. It's, it's fair to say we we um, we we, we, would, we did quite a lot of work uh, together with with a, a small team that, that we had at the time, um, and we, we we learned quite a lot of interesting things and and obviously some of the some of the things some of the work that we did um together uh, me and manuel and our colleagues at the time uh, some of that ended up some of the insights from from that work together ended up in in the team topologies book uh, which we were writing from 2018 it was published in 2019 hearing hearing the two of you talk about sort of where you're where you're coming from like your journey your path and how how you got into this and then sort of realizing that there's a lot of things going on and uh, that has to do with socio-technical aspects is, is actually really, really encouraging. Um, you know, Matt and I, we, we talk to companies a lot, big organizations, quite a lot. And um, I start hearing certain words, certain phrases, and then I realize I just say, hey, have you read Team Topologies? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, it's, it's our <laughs> blueprint. It's the thing we do. And it, it's sort of, you know, on the surface, it's a little bit, are you agile? Oh, yeah. You know, you know do you do... Uh, you know, APIs. Oh yeah. Do you do team topologies? Oh yeah. You know, you can you kind of worry a little bit, but, um, that there's a, certainly team topologies at this point, you think about it, you were working on it in 2018, it was released in 2019. It's a pretty well-known term and phrase and idea. And I, I think one of the beauties is that it gives us all a kind of a language to talk about these issues. But before we get too deep into it, maybe for people who haven't run into this, you could maybe give a sort of a top line or a highlight of the, of the concept, sort of a brief synopsis of, 
of, of what the book is about and, 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 and its main lessons. I don't know. That's a lot to ask, but anyone want to give it a shot? It's an interesting one because uh, we've now had three and a bit years to to kind of uh, be, be working mm-hmm. with the ideas in Teen Body's book. Uh, and for me, the way I see it is is really like this. Um, if we want the, the, the shortest route for getting uh, a change to a software service into the live environment is to avoid handoffs between one team and another. Mm. Mm-hmm. That is the shortest route. And so if we want to avoid handoffs, then we need to have a team which has end-to-end responsibility for that service. So they build it, they test it, they deploy it, they run it. Um, and in theory, then, that, that's, that, that's the, the, the most effective kind of um, <clears throat> flow-based approach because handoffs kill flow. We know that. If you look at the right. stuff that Don Reinerson talks about in mm-hmm. uh, product development flow and all that sort of stuff, just from a mathematical perspective, as soon as you have handoffs in place, it really uh, it really works against uh, a fast flow of change. So that's our starting point, is a team that has no handoffs to another team. They build and run uh, one or more services. But then, if that's true, what does that, what implications does that have? Because a team is at, has a has a has a, a, a effectively a size limit because because of human trust boundaries we can't really actually effectively trust people really deeply more than about uh, more than about eight people some organizations manage to get to get that trust up to about 15 people which incidentally is why we see sports teams uh, maxing mm-hmm. out at about 15 players yeah um so some organizations with, with better trust might be able to have a slightly bigger team, but 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 most of organizations is around about eight people. So we've got a limit on the team size, okay. So that means we've got a limit on the kind of about brain capacity or thinking capacity or kind of cognitive capacity that that team can actually work with and, and bring to bear on the software it's building. So it also kind of implies a limit on the size of the services that that team can can actually work with. Mm-hmm. Because they, we can't just continually increase the the amount of code that they need to think about and the different number of technologies and so on. So we've got we've got uh, we've got the the need for no handoff from a flow perspective. We've got a limited team size. We've got also thinking about team cognitive load. Mm-hmm. This then means we need some way of helping that team to manage the complexity and and the the the, the lots of different factors. That they're going to be responsible for. If they're responsible for a service that is, like, say, uh, buying a pizza or booking a car delivery or something, there's a lot involved in in these things. So, how do we now take a team first approach to reduce that cognitive load to help them own that service end to end? And effectively, from that starting point emerges pretty much everything else from from team topologies, including all of the other team types, the team interaction modes, uh, a bunch of other things. That's that's kind of how I. That's how I see it now from, from that starting point. And if you want to look at it from kind of from beginning to end of the book, if you like, it's we, we cover, we start by covering, uh, to me, the constraints that often exist or, or I would say always exist in organizations mm-hmm. that are often overlooked or not even uh, known by, by, by people making decisions that are in strongly impacted by those constraints. So when we're talking about things like Conway's law, we're talking about things like 
uh, trust boundaries and Dunbar's number uh, mm-hmm. and cognitive loads that Matthew uh, mentioned, where what we did was um, bring the concept of cognitive load, which is quite familiar for people working in user experience and they're thinking about the user's cognitive load in order to do some tasks with our products, um, bring that idea to the teams that are actually developing those systems. They also have a limit on their cognitive capacity that we need to be aware of. As Matthew was saying, you know, if you go over that limit um, and you're basically just throwing more things at the teams, then um, the work, uh, the speed, the quality, reliability, they're all going to be impacted. So these are all constraints that I think um, senior leaders and people in HR as well and other uh, positions should be aware of them so they can make better decisions on how we organize, how teams should interact, etc. And then what a lot of people know about team topology is maybe those who haven't read the book but have seen some, some article or some presentation, they know that we talk about four specific types of teams and three interaction modes. Mm-hmm. Um, and without you know, going to, into all the details of different types of teams, the, the, the first one, the main one, is what Matthew was saying, uh, stream-aligned teams that have end-to-end ownership over some uh, service or part of a product which has value for the customers. Um, and so the other teams help reduce cognitive load on the stream-aligned teams, help effectively build organizations that apply and adopt these ideas of continuous learning, the ideas of uh, fast flow, um, and the ideas of of reducing dependencies and and increasing the autonomy of teams, increasing the the purpose of teams, right, And, and clarifying expected behaviors. So... These four types of teams, and then the interaction modes. How how you know how can we be more specific, more intentional about um, how different teams? When should they interact? For what purpose? And and for how long? Um, all of this really helps. Um, and then the third part of the book is about how do we evolve, right? So understanding that there's no static, ideal operating model that we should stick to forever. Uh, in fact, we should be always aware and always sensing for when we need to change. Um, and that means, going back to, to the previous question, we need to be aware that we're working in a social technical system. It's not there's a strong uh, dependency between architecture of, of the system, of the, the design of teams and, and the business value streams. Um, so we need to be aware of that, first of all, and then have a sensing approach where we're looking at, okay, what is it that we need to solve for next? What is it that we're lacking some capabilities or some some skills? What is it that um, requires a more kind of self-service approach or some kind of uh, internal services that can help uh, teams uh, move faster and not be overburdened uh, by too much cognitive load? Um, and this is... Interesting because you mentioned a lot of uh, large organizations that say yes, we we follow team topologies like they they said before. We follow agile, follow DevOps, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we've seen cases where um, they what they mean is that they've sometimes uh, you know there's all sorts of situations, but there are some cases where what they've done is try to map their teams to the four types that we talk about and. Mm-hmm 
perhaps mm-hmm. they're they're trying to adopt interaction modes, and that's kind of a super superficial, um, or you know, I mm-hmm. I don't mean to say that's not helpful, but it's kind of just a starting point to what should be a much larger journey where understanding the principles I was talking about, principles of fast flow, loose coupling, uh, reducing dependencies, uh, aligning teams to value streams, all of that um, requires a lot more than just saying, well, our teams are, whatever, compliant (laughs) with team topologies or something like that. Um, And so that's where we see, if you like, um, maybe the, the maturity needs still to to increase uh, for a lot of organizations around what we mean by team topologies, which is mm-hmm. having that evolutionary social technical view of our organization and then the things that we're uh, building for our customers. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. I want to probe on that a bit more about how you deal with that issue, but just the the discussion there around you know cognitive load coming in sort of from user experience thinking and it's this blend of design thinking, really looking at the organization as something that's being designed yeah. in the way that we think about design in, in product design and in software design. It's really interesting. And then blending that with systems thinking where you're, you know, you know, obviously you need to start with the team types, but then really zooming in on the interaction modes and then, you know, the, the sort of evolution over time, very aligned with systems thinking stuff. But, um, you know, uh, you mentioned Conway's Law, right? And I think that, that the opening of the book really delves into Conway's Law in a great way. Um, and Mike and I have had the pleasure of uh, of meeting Mel Conway and, and you know, really studying his work. And he's done so much more than just Conway's Law. Um, but I just think it's interesting, right? He, write, he writes this paper, uh, it's over 50 years ago, comes known for it, does all these other things, but it's some, it's one of those things that really gets cargo culted out there, right? People say, "Oh, Conway's law," and they sort of, you know, don't ship the org chart kind of thinking, or you know, however they want to paraphrase it. Um, but there's a lot more in that paper, and obviously a lot more that Mel has done in the same vein. How how do you guys deal with those situations that you were just describing, where maybe an organization takes the just the surface level, like, "Hey, the team types," and then does a rationalization exercise and sort of maps tries to map their teams to that and then says, okay, we're compliant with the team topologies approach. How do you deal with that where you can sort of make sure they get into the principles behind it and the depth of it? That's a good question. I think one of the one of the main ways in which we've, well, one of the first things that we've done in this space is to avoid the certification route. Uh, so there are no team topology certifications mm-hmm. there isn't you cannot become a team topology certified agile whatever you can't become a team topology certified professional or team topology certified organization or anything like that there are plenty enough of those certifications out there already some organizations have made many many millions of dollars off the back of them we don't think that's <laughs> yep. very helpful so one of the first yeah one of the, one of the if you go to teamtobodies.com slash certification I think you'll find a page that tells you exactly that there is literally there's no certification program um, and that's actually kind of interesting because it um, because that deliberately that's a constraint that's a, that that's a constraint on how we can um, uh, kind of um, 
communicate and um, and sort of confirm effective approaches. We, we, we deliberately closed off that route. And so what's what's remaining? Well, what's mm-hmm. remaining is things like our um, uh, on-demand um, video training, which Manuel can can definitely uh, share more on because that's his mm-hmm. that's his uh, uh, part of the world, if you like. Um, and we've also we're also building out a uh, a worldwide partner program, um, precisely mm-hmm. so that we can help to shape um, the adoption of teen topologies using local partners in each country. Um, mm-hmm. Partners that we're working very, very closely with, so that they really understand the details. Um, mm-hmm. We've also got a core team of what we call team supporters, valued practitioners. These are individuals, uh, so TTBP. These are individuals who have got an outstanding, made an outstanding contribution to um, the field. They mm-hmm. they've used team supporters, but they blend it with something else. So um, it might be combining team supporters and domain driven design. It might be combining team supporters with uh, some sort of cloud. Uh, awareness, or even bringing together three things. So in, in the case of uh, Suzanne Kaiser, um, mm. she's brought together team topologies, domain driven design, and Wardley mapping, which is actually <laughs> mind blowing. Right? This is this is wow. an amazing. Thing. <laughs> Her book is coming out soon. Yeah, go um, see that. And so we, 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 we've, we're 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 trying to grow an ecosystem uh, of switched on individuals and organisations that can help to um, that can help to 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 avoid this kind of surface level adoption. It will always happen, but with the, with a combination of our partners, with the online training, and with the, with the amount of material that we make available for free, uh, we're hoping to, to, to avoid the, the worst of, of that kind of problem. So we've got loads of stuff on our GitHub, uh, GitHub um, uh, site, so lots of different repositories, for, for, and it's all Creative Commons um, share alike so it's kind of you know freely usable as, as long as you you attribute correctly uh, and so on and so on we, we're trying to make these patterns easily consumable and shareable and uh, evolvable and all this kind of stuff we, we haven't put we haven't put things behind a great big intellectual property fence um deliberately because we want we want to make a difference we actually want to make um the building and running of software enriched services more humane uh, more effective for people around the world, basically. So this is actually our our emerging mission is to actually help this help this time. So, in in other words, as well, we, we sort of try to take an enabling approach to the customers we have that ask mm. for help, instead of what many consultancies will do, which is to try to help to decide for the customer and and tell them this is what you should do. But that's, again, sort of static or, or, you know, uh, limited in time kind of approach, which might help you right now, but you still might be stuck in three months, six months, or uh, whenever. And so our approach is to try to follow the principles in team topologies as well and Mm -hmm. help organizations enable them to have the internal capabilities to do the actual thinking around um, this kind of social technical thinking. And like Matthew said, also bring in other uh, approaches that are that play very well together with team topologies, domain-driven design, or things like dynamic reteaming, uh, worldly mapping, etc. Because definitely what we've also seen is that team topologies 
can be an entry point for organizations that really want to change the way they've been they've been thinking about the organization um, to be more adaptive, to be more able to actually fix their own problems by having the internal skills to do that around this this approaches that we're talking about. So obviously it's not just team topologies. Um, and when you, I was just reading earlier today, like the 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 average sort of lifespan for organizations to be in to be in the you know the the in 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 the top um, you know whatever rating you look at that the average time that organizations stay there is is going down over time. That means organizations are not really able to adapt over time. It, they might do very well for uh, 5, 10, 20 years, and then they hit a limit because they just kept doing the same thing over and over, right, as the world changed around them. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we we try to enable organizations and all the things Matthew mentioned, the, the online academy, the uh, workshops we have, and the, the, the partners that are really, you know, experienced people, um, is in order to be able to do that to to help uh, customers that that we have um, increase their capabilities and and actually not need us at some point, <laughs> which is contrary to what uh, many consultancies do, where you know which their model is to to keep the client uh, depending on your on your knowledge and your skills as an external um, company. I, I love all of that. I love that. I love that attitude that that basically says we're enablers, uh, and I think that that shows a, a kind of a, a a different sort of approach to problem solving in general, which I find really really exciting as well. I, I also did not realize about your sort of your value partner stra- strategy, the things that are developing in terms of sort of combining other things. It must be kind of gratifying to know that. Topologies in Wardley, or topologies in DDD, or topologies in Agile, and so on and so forth, actually make sense and and you know create value. That's that that's a, that's really quite amazing. That I think that's another real sign that you're onto something here. Now, what I wanted to sort of touch on a little bit was this idea. We we talked about Conway, and you know how Mel had pointed out one of the things Mel pointed out in his essay had to do with these relationships, these isomorphic relationships between the systems that are created and the organizational paths of the creators kind of kind of idea that companies creating systems and, and, and software, um, they have their own architectural best practices and patterns. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering, this, this may be just literally shoehorning. Matt and I have this term that we've been using, orgitecture. It's sort of like the organizational architecture Software architecture, organizational architecture. I'm not sure if that's really very smart or even if it's very unique. But, um, <laughs> you know, people talk about this idea of reverse Conway, which is almost that same notion. Hey, we're Conway compliant because we have small teams kind of thing. From from Since you're both from this engineering background, how influential was that software engineering experience and software architecture uh, uh, experience in designing the architecture of the topologies of the methodology itself is is there a kind of a isomorphic relationship or is there a little bit more complicated? Clearly, in in, in both of our heads, we, we've we've had good, really sounds kind of software 
architecture and and software principles in in in, in, um, in our heads for you know twenty years or whatever around mm-hmm. loose coupling and nice clear interfaces and all this kind of stuff. That's how you build good software, and the the and why that's important is because in software we're able to iterate and test and evolve these patterns very very quickly. Software is the the material or the the context, if you like, in which we can discover and evolve and improve mm. patterns for scaling in in a way which it would take decades and decades to do if you just did it with organizations first, or if you just did it with mm. um, with uh, satellites first, or you just did it with uh, automobiles mm-hmm. first. It would take so long to do it. With software, we have a very, very rapid iteration cycle, and that's why many of these patterns are coming out of the software world is precisely because we've been able to test and adapt them so effectively mm. and, and test them. So there's that's why software is kind of special, but also not special, because it's just because it, effectively at one level, it's just because software is we're able to 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 um, test and adapt these kind of patterns um, so, so effectively. But yeah, I think it's fair to say there's a very conscious application of sound software. Sorry, sound principles that are that have been derived from uh, software um, of the co- uh, over the last you know decades, sure, and yeah. and trying to apply those in an organizational context. But from my perspective, I've also brought um, patterns from my experience in uh, as a as someone who uh, plays music a lot. So I'm in, oh, I'm in okay. bands and choirs, and I, I write my own music and all sorts of things like this. So I'm thinking about structure. I'm thinking about dynamics. I'm thinking about rhythm. I'm thinking about melody and harmony and how these things work together. Um, I'm thinking about kind of um, cadence. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about um, how, sure. how things come together in time. So that is, and I've, and I've, been, I've been doing um, performing music since I was uh, eight years old in various different mm. contexts, and I continue to do so. Um, I had a, we had the Christmas concert with my concert band uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, and I was wearing a Santa hat and a, and a Christmas jumper playing my trumpet, uh, which was great. Um, um, but I, I, and so alongside software and music, I've also brought in some awareness from um, brain science, so biology. So uh, I, I did do a master's degree in neuroscience. It was a long time ago. It's 20 years ago now. And the world <laughs> in neuroscience has moved on an awful lot, but... Um, if we think about the way, if you look in, in, into the way in which, the, for example, the human brain is sort of structured, um, we've got very different types of nerve cells making very specific kinds of connections to other kind of nerve cells uh, and signaling between them. But we've also got a kind of diffuse signaling uh, using using things like nitrous oxide um, between different parts of the brain, that, that and, and that kind of signaling works on, on a much slower cadence. So I'm I've, I'm bringing in three different perspectives. I'm bringing in the software perspective. I'm bringing in a music perspective, and I'm bringing in a a neurobiology perspective to to the patterns that we're seeing here. Um, and it's kind of in uh, amongst some other things as well. But those are the three mm-hmm. specific things that, that that were in my head as I was as I was writing the book. But Manuel, I think you brought some uh, additional perspectives too. Haven't you? When I think of Conway's law, it's like you said, it's it talks about isomorphic relationship between systems and the architecture that we have in our systems and the way teams communicate, the communication channels and, and the way they're organized as well. And 
it's yes we 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 have in our minds or in the back of our minds as we wrote team topologies the principles of of loose coupling of you know service orientation and this kind of things but the reality is a lot more messy and that's why i think we often have seen uh what seem good architecture initiatives or i've seen in different organizations you know on paper it sounds great and this is really what we should do whether you're talking about soa back in in uh, mm. 2000s or you're talking about microservices and it's all great on paper but as you get into the reality you see where you know where all the cracks are and so i think the issue is there's often issues where uh we're we're idealizing certain even that you know software architecture approach um conway's law where where we're sort of taking to some some extreme things that actually in the real world you know you need to contextualize you need to to find you know what is the right balance so with conway's law for example you have people that are going to take conway's law and say well there's nothing we can do because the 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 system is going to look exactly like our teams and so you know we just have to live with it um where it's not exactly like that you know it's, it's not like it's not an exact mirror it's just a force that plays out where there's this tendency for things to to be influenced by each other um and other things that i see often i've seen in, in my experience in, in in software industry um we get very attached to certain principles like you know don't repeat yourself but then mm. okay don't repeat yourself but what do you mean what do you mean exactly is this <laughs> You know, don't duplicate code and methods in the same service. Sure, I mean that. Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? Uh, but then, if we're duplicating the you know the execution of some services so we can scale better, have more redundancy, that's actually a good thing. Or maybe we're you know duplicating certain um, code so that different teams can use it for different purposes and then evolve maybe like you know have the same starting point but then they will we know they're going to evolve separately then if we try to keep it together as you know this is a single version of this software we're actually constraining the ability of teams and and the organization to move faster in different mm -hmm. markets or different uh, value streams where we might have different customers even though functionality looks pretty similar and so that's why i think it's both ways it's in 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 one sense yes we've taken good principles and thought about how do we decouple teams allowing them to to move faster but at the same time um uh, having the right interactions when the interactions are needed um but then also don't take things to an extreme uh like in this example of of the uh, uh, don't repeat yourself we need to think in which context it helps and, and which context maybe doesn't help as much. Um, and that's where it gets difficult and, and complicated. And so this connects to some extent back to what we were saying about organizations building this kind of skills of thinking in this way, thinking about fast flow, thinking about trade-offs between, um, you know, architectural principles that, might be in paper ideal, but in practice, we need to find a, a balance between um, 
what what really helps us achieve our our goals. If that's fast flow, then we need to think about architectures and and ways of of building more decoupled um, services and products, which might some people say would would go against some other principles that we've taken for granted um, until now. So it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a recurring theme for sure. So. One of the things, though, I think that is very apropos for our podcast here that I would say is certainly an explicit analogy between the software architecture landscape and these organizational dynamics domain is this idea of a team API, right? I think you, um, you know, we've talked about how there's the team types, but the interaction modes and really how how the whole system functions with the, the stream aligned teams being supported by the other team types and, you know, how and when there's interactions and handoffs and making those flow as smoothly as possible. You, you talk about this notion of a, of a team API, um, you know, like where, where did that idea come from and, and, you know, how intentional was the use and does it, does it, do you bring with it this, some of the, you know, as a short shortcut to try and for people familiar with working with APIs, bringing in some of the good principles for API design, like where, where did that come about? It's a good question. I mean, it's it's very intentional. I mean, API is is like super super techy um, word, right? Application programming interface. Uh, it's yeah. been around since I don't know when it was first came out. Probably the sixties, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, for people working in software, it's completely natural, or at least after a while. It's completely natural to think about defining an API, to def- defining a very clear interface between two things that need to talk to each other. But this is, this is, this is an alien concept for people who have not come through a software route. Mm. It's a really weird concept for most people who are who are, who, who are not aware of software to, to define a very clear interface between two parts of an organization. For example, it, mm. it's an alien concept, and. Um, and and so that's why actually it feels like it's actually quite valuable to map it back to the software API concept as you use that term, even though the the terms you know team API is quite nerdy and quite 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 technical. <laughs> it, it links it back to what we mean by a software API. Then we can start to talk about that. It's like a plug and a socket, and if you get the wrong kind of plug, it doesn't fit properly, and that's good mm-hmm. because you don't want to mm-hmm. plug it into the wrong place and blah blah blah. Um, mm-hmm. And then using that to, to explain the benefits of using an API approach, which is we've got much clear, clearer definitions. We're setting some expectations. We can make some promises or at least um, uh, help people to, to have some expectations about what's going to happen on, on either side of that API and so on and so on. People start to get it because they start to, start to understand why that's valuable because effectively you're, you're talking about um, service boundaries and expectations and then being able to build on those and therefore if you start to rely on something because it's a nice clear definition then you can go quicker and you don't have to think about as much stuff and wow that's amazing suddenly we don't have to worry about all this all this nonsense we used to have to worry about in the past um, but it is it is very unfamiliar to lots of people that that kind of leads me to the sort of the, the next part of this conversation. We talked about the book, and you talk about your experience, and now sort of explaining it to people that maybe ne- didn't necessarily start with software engineering. You're you're both you're you're you're, in, you're consulting with organizations now. You're talking about all these kinds of things with lots and lots of different people now. I'm wondering how how is that 
how was that experience working on as consultants now with this space? And are you running into organizations that seem to really do this really well, seem to have this organizational architecture kind of pattern working well? What, what's been your experience as you go out and start really consulting with, with organizations on this team topologies? Uh, here's the thing. What's really interesting now, three and a bit years after the book is published, is that we are now getting inbound messages, emails and and contact Mm. from organizations that are well outside of IT. So I had a conversation Mm. earlier, sorry, it was last week. Um, We we had a conversation with uh, the the head of a, a legal practice in the UK. And she had been uh, trying to restructure her legal practice uh, along lines which are more service-oriented, which have better customer outcomes, um, which avoid uh, a dependency on a single lawyer who might be away on holiday for a period of time so that that whole customer case gets gets stopped until that lawyer comes back and so on. Mm. She'd been trying to do this. and um, she then sort of discovered by accident this idea of team topologies. And she got the book and was like, my goodness, this is perfect. This is exactly <laughs> what I need. This is the language. We're working with them now with a, a law firm using right. the team topologies uh, patterns to uh, achieve pro- productization of legal services, to achieve right. clearer boundaries, a kind of codified way of working um, mm-hmm. within the legal sector. So that is super exciting. We kind of suspected that the team topologies ideas could be used outside of IT, but we didn't want to be too optimistic before publishing the book, which is why we restricted the the kind of the subtitle is around uh, business and technology teams. Mm. But the team topologies ideas are then starting to be applied in the legal sector. They're also being used in the healthcare sector, certainly in the UK mm. and probably abroad. Mm. Uh, we've had people from um, like clinical care teams saying how that you know you might get like an anesthetist, a surgeon, a specialist nurse, a doctor, a group of people like this cross-functional skills effectively, multi-skilled team, who can then look after a patient, like a trauma patient who's like got COVID and they've broken their leg and they're pregnant and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And they need to look after them end to end because in a healthcare setting, if you hand off to another team, it increases the chance of that patient dying. And I believe it's something in certain cases, if you have four handoffs from, from one team to another, the patient has like a 50% increased chance wow. of dying. Like it's literally life wow. and death in these situations. So and we're, we're being told by people in the UK, in these clinical settings, we want to use gene bodies throughout the whole of the, of the in the UK, we've, we've got the NHS, National Health Service. So through the sure. whole of the healthcare system. In, in the UK, wow. and that's amazing too. Kind of, it's slightly, it, it's 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 quite daunting to be honest, but yeah. it's also quite amazing. And guaranteed, it's gonna it's gonna be applicable to uh, accounting. It's gonna be applicable to sales and marketing and a bunch of other things because people are telling us that they're already using it. It's not that we're going out there and inventing it. People are telling us they're using ideas already. So, um, this kind of codification and 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 using this kind of API thinking. Uh, to to better shape um, better shape at least better shape knowledge work so legal accounting you know kind of lots of software development sort of fits into knowledge work but also outside of that in healthcare like actually helping helping um, 
yeah, the, these clinical care teams actually save lives and things. So I think, I think it's an amazing time to be involved in this. It's going to be super exciting over, over the next few years to see what comes out. To, to, to really push this stuff to, to the limit and maybe maybe we need to add some more things or take some things away or whatever, should we reshape it ever so slightly in certain contexts? But so far, it seems like this kind of API approach has provided a huge degree of clarity and, and, and really valuable language to people in multiple different right. disciplines, not just IT, to help them actually reason and, 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 and talk about how they work and that's kind of amazing. Like we're 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 very excited about that. And I I can fill in the more dull part of the, the answer, perhaps, <laughs> because it's it's hard to follow up on that. But um, in terms of of software and, and digital services, of of course we have a uh, 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 very high demand. Uh, it, it's it started almost. I think almost immediately after the book came out, right, uh, Matthew, because some people already yeah. had seen some of our talks and articles. So, uh, but over time has been increasing, um, and we're still seeing an increase in, in in sales of the book. So there's definitely still kind of upwards trend, um, and we do expect that sometime there will be a plateau or some disillusionment from organizations that try to apply some ideas, but maybe like we were saying earlier, maybe didn't really invest in the internal skills. And so they just tried some stuff and it didn't work that well. And they're, they're now, you know, might be disappointed. And so that's actually something we expect at some point. But um, mainly the, the, it has been very positive. And what's interesting uh, to me is that we've seen several organizations where we were not involved at all. And the things they've done based on what they read in the book and how they applied it to their organization are quite impressive. So we actually, the ones that we have been able to to publish uh, publicly are on our website on teamtopologies.com slash examples. Um, and there's things like uh, Pure Gym, for example, where um, this is a, a chain of... Uh, you know, mobile first um, gyms in the UK, right? Maybe they're they're expanding uh, elsewhere, but they're quite quite big in the UK, and so it's all digital first, etc. Um, and how they they actually, what we were saying before, they they actually explicitly set up time uh, or you know space for teams to discover how they should interact, what are the gaps that they need to address, um, what is you know what is working well, what isn't. So they explicitly made time for that, and they understood that it's not something that we just decide on the paper, and now we're going to just change the teams and everything is going to be fine. It's you need to learn by doing, and 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 keep continuously sensing, you know what what is now the the, the challenge that we have after we solve the previous uh, issue, what's next, um, and so, and other examples of you know. Uh, like Foot Asylum bringing in team topologies with worldly mapping. And, and so that's really super interesting to see those examples where we were not involved and there are things that they've done that we were not thinking about when we wrote the book. Um, and so those those are available. And then, um, yeah, we have, you know, we, we, we have different kinds of engagements. Um, Matthew mentioned earlier some of the things we do is, 
is a combination of uh, online training, uh, workshops, uh, and then more kind of hands-on helping. But it's always with this enabling approach. We're trying to, so we, we make sure there's, we spend the time initially um, to understand where the customer is and how is their understanding of team topologies and basically are they willing to put in the work that's needed to you know, transform into this kind of adaptive organization and not just expect that we come back with a report and then they, well, we're going to implement what you're, we told us and that's it. Because that's really a very, to me, seems very old school approach to helping customers and the results are are, at li- are mixed, to say the least, of, of that kind of old school approach. And so we actually need to figure out how we can help customers by by enabling them. So that's what we try to do. So just to probe on that bit a little bit, like without naming names, um, you know, if you go into an organization where you see that maybe their intentions are all good saying, hey, we need what you guys are are, are really professing in the book, um, but you observe that maybe the culture is not aligned or, you know, they're not picking up that, the you know, that, that longer term view of becoming adaptive and sensing and learning and, you know, how do you deal with those situations? Like, have you found a way to sort of sail into the wind and, and help those organizations succeed or you just kind of have to gracefully exit? Because uh, I think that's, that's such a big challenge, especially where, especially organizations where maybe there's people at a lower level within the organization that are really dying for it, but maybe they're sort of snookered by the, their, their leaders. I don't know. I don't know how you deal with that. I don't know if maybe we're in sort of privileged position compared to other organizations where there are other kind of forces pushing them to try to, to sell stuff or to, uh, and services, but basically, and at least my perspective is what we always try to help. And sometimes the help is, look, you need to change your approach to how you think about teams or you need to change, you know, you cannot have, you look at people as resources or you cannot have funding models based on uh, three-year projections and, and stuff like that. And so um, sometimes that's what happens. We're, you know, We'll tell them uh, our perspective, what we see that you know it's it's not working well at the organization, and so in some cases that might be uh, sort of a showstopper, right? We can't really help you until you sort of change, and and here are some pointers to things that you can look at. So we often reference uh, other authors from IT Revolution. Um, it's, I'll probably miss out some that, that, that I should mention, but I, I love the work of John Smart, the work of mm-hmm. uh, Mick Kirsten with Project to Product, mm-hmm. uh, the, the work of Dominica de Grandis. Um, so that happens on some occasions where, say, you know, you need to look into this maybe first because um, if you have certain like cultural and, and views of the world, uh, that really are, uh, like like you said, kind of um, stacked against you. They're kind of impeding you to actually, f- you know, make make steps forward and, and actually 
benefit from team topologies, then you need to to address that first. But what also happens um, that's interesting, maybe as an anecdote, but sometimes people mention team topologies as uh, I've and I've I've seen this in in some uh, with some you know uh, potential customers where they're thinking about a, a big transformation and they think of there's this one part which is the design of the teams and the organization and we'll use team topologies for that um, and I don't I don't mind that but I think um, it's more than that and team topologies mm-hmm. can be an entry point to start thinking about what else do you need mm-hmm. uh, maybe you need to think about your strategy and, and what can help you with that or maybe you need to think about uh, really understanding more in depth what actually are your business value what do you provide to customers that is valuable how do you kind of uh, separate different offerings that you have uh, that might be coupled or might be causing confusion for your customers rather than helping them um, and so that's that's how I see it we try to you know be straightforward and sometimes there might be blockers that means maybe you should come back to think about team topologies after you address that and other times team topologies can be just a starting point to other things where you start realizing well we we need to think about this other stuff as well uh together with with team topologies the the thing that i'd add to that is um what what we do a lot is um is group learning events. So the, the the live sessions that we run are group learning events. But what tends to happen in these events, so you might have up to, say, 15 people um, online on a Zoom call or whatever around a mirror board, a digital whiteboard. Hmm. And we've, we've prepared the session to help them discuss things and have realizations. So we frame the questions in a way which generates some interesting insights for them. And where what we like to see is a series of light bulbs going on over people's heads. Mm-hmm. That metaphorical light bulb. You see people going, ah, I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah. And by the end of these sessions, you've got 15 people, typically they're managers or leaders or directors or VPs or whatever, and they've now got a shared language. They've now got a shared mental model right. of something. They, they, they see a bigger picture or they see a route to, um, to, to fixing something or whatever. And they've, they've done that work together. Uh, yeah. Now, they could have done that themselves. But in reality, lots of, lots of large organizations, you're never going to get 15 people together without, without an external organization. So that's what we help <laughs> them do. We help them to have those insights. Uh, which acts as a the, these sessions and act as a catalyst, a series of catalysts to 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 kind of catalyze change and to help to improve the kind of internal capabilities, internal awareness of the the, the nature of the kind of change that we're talking about here, which ultimately is making businesses more self-aware. That's what it really is about, mm. and that's that is great, and and so that that can go hand in hand with 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 uh, what Manuel was saying, where maybe. We get this group of managers or, or leaders or whoever to have these realizations and go, hmm, yeah, maybe we do actually need to plan this a little bit more or, or we do need to do some more capability building first or whatever. And it saved them, you know, probably 18 months worth of messing right. about failing because they've had the realization nice and early. 
So this, these kind of shared learning events as catalysts seems to be a hugely valuable thing. And we've, it's not exactly, we've not exactly stumbled onto this format accidentally, but we kind of stumbled onto this format accidentally uh, during the pand- <laughs> during the pandemic, <laughs> and it really works really well. So we've we've doubled down on that uh, as an approach um, because people find it really valuable. Yeah, can I can I add just that sometimes the challenges are are also uh, or barriers are are also technical, not not only cultural. So if you have organizations that are really still working in the very um, what we would now consider to be um, old-fashioned way of developing their software and and how they they deploy and build and 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 uh, monitor etc in some cases they might need to we might recommend that they work on that first because they haven't even gone through the kind of changes at the level of you know software development that Matthew was mentioned earlier in terms of how quickly you can iterate and make things uh, better in your systems. So if you don't have that experience, you're lacking that kind of, you know, your uh, understanding of, you know, continuous delivery, DevOps practices and all that. Um, it might be in some cases that um, actually we, we would recommend the organization to spend some time on that before they're trying to, to adopt team topologies. So that's another angle besides the ones you mentioned on, on you know, financial, cultural barriers, et cetera. On that note, I mean, I... I... I, again, I'm just so, uh, you know, impressed by this this notion of even when you when you come up with cases. Well, maybe before you do team typologies, let's help you do X or that notion of getting the aha moment. I just I just love that. So it's been a it's been a great great session. I want to thank both of you so much for 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 joining us. So where can listeners go? You've mentioned a few things, but where can they go? How can they engage with you? If uh, if uh, they'd like to help, what how do they connect with you? The easiest thing is just to go to teamtopologies.com and you'll find all kind of stuff on there. Um, uh, links to existing talks and resources and uh, community materials and uh, ideas and key concepts and a bunch of other things as well. I couldn't not mention the Academy since <laughs> that's, that's one of my... Um, so internally, if that's uh, interesting, <laughs> we, like I said, we tried to adopt uh, some of Team Topology's ideas as well. And so we sort of have our internal value streams to our uh, business, if you like. One of them is the online training through our academy. So um, you can find that through the teamtopologies.com, but basically it's academy.teamtopologies.com. Um, and then there's the, the GitHub repositories that Matthew mentioned. So the um open source creative commons uh techniques and templates that we use ourselves uh when we're helping customers um in that enabling way and that's why they are you know openly available as well so that customers or whoever wants to try this can can do it uh without any kind of um ip restriction other than you know attributing the work to to the authors and so that's on github dot uh, com slash team topologies. Awesome. This, we've covered a ton of ground. I appreciate it so much. Uh, I think the uh, there's there's so much in there. You know, I, I I had a I had my own light bulb moments here as we were talking. My wife is a social worker at a hospital, and she's actually working on interdisciplinary teams 
like you described, Matthew. Mm, and I think nice. the the idea of you know what what you've sort of what has surfaced through you know maybe maybe it emerged in a you know the the special theory of relativity versus the general theory of relativity <laughs> right start start starts in a in a software engineering context but now it is broadly applicable in law and in medicine and so on and and I love the kind of covering the full spectrum of backgrounds around from design thinking to to music right Mike and I are both musicians oh, okay. ourselves and it, there's so much in there and it it feels like you know a common thread is just this this balancing of you know, giving things in a digestible way so people can understand them and form those mental models while still respecting the nuance and detail that and complexity mm. that's behind that. Always walking that fine line, I think, is, is, is the tricky part. But I think you guys are doing an amazing job. I think it's ex- exceptionally helpful to readers as a companion to, to the book to understand the, the founding principles behind it, all the thinking that's gone into it. So this has been a huge pleasure. I guess my my last contribution. It's like uh, if I if I sum up walking the fine line, I I'll go to Dylan Thomas in in poetry <laughs> and, and talking about uh, in, in his poem Fern Hill. He's talking about singing in his chains like the sea, and maybe that's what we want these organizations to to have the constraints of the chains and but still be able to operate effectively. So anyway, uh, no, this has been great, uh, Manuel Matthew. Thank you so much. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thank you very much for fun. Awesome. And Mike, of course, thank you very much. Good luck in Paris and hope you get well soon. Thank you very much. It's been a great experience as usual. I learn more every single time we're together. Thank you very much. Awesome. And uh, thank you to all the listeners. We hope you've learned as much as we have and look forward to welcoming you on, on the next episode of APIs Unplugged. Bye for now. <laughs>